0: Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 291. Today's topic is the COVID relief bill. Let's look at an article written by Alex Rubenstein with The Gray Zone. This is at thegrayzone.com and the title of the article is that the U.S. Congress's $900 $900 billion COVID-19 relief bill was packaged with the $1.4 trillion omnibus spending that includes tens of billions for war, weapons, and regime change from anti-Russia and anti-China initiatives to $3.3 billion for Israel's military. The title of the article is COVID-19 Catch-22, Regime Change Policies Come with US pandemic relief by Alex Rubenstein and Jeb Sprague. So one initial observation is that there is so much military spending that's packaged in with so-called COVID relief. They can't bother to give us $600 or maybe $2,000 possibly if we're lucky. There's a serious question as to whether the people are going to get any money at all, but there's lots and lots of money for weapons and war. It says here, The longest piece of legislation in United States history containing both a coronavirus relief package and the annual omnibus spending package quickly passed through Congress on December 22nd with little opposition. While technically separate bills, the omnibus and stimulus were debated and passed together at the same time. The massive piece of legislation, a staggering 5,593 pages in length, lays bare the priorities of the U.S. government, prioritizing regime change in foreign nations and imperatives of empire over basic needs of Americans. 5,000 pages, 5,500 pages in length. In fact, 5,593 pages in length was required to address so-called COVID relief. You know, the, the COVID relief package, a true COVID relief package could have been a page. And here's what the page could have said and we're going to provide Medicare for All, which is, you know, all we have to do is to extend the eligible age. Currently, the age of Medicare for All is 65 years. That goes down to zero and including prenatal care. Very simple, very easy. Instead of saying that in less than a page, We've got 5,593 pages, much of it, not surprisingly, for military spending, which includes, of course, so-called democracy programs. In other words, regime change. We knew when we found out Venezuela had all that oil, we knew we were going to have to bring them democracy. So it says here, while the U.S. public was forced to grovel for months for a $600 direct payment, the same piece of legislation pumps billions of dollars into quote-unquote democracy programs, U.S. government code for regime change operations via civil society NGOs, and foreign military assistance. It says here, on so-called democracy programs, the legislation appropriates $2.4 billion as well as $6.1 billion in foreign military financing programs. So we're financing the military. Also, $112 million for international military education and training. I think people elsewhere in the world would rather that we not spend any money on international military education and training. How often is military education and training something that is beneficial to people? And how often is military education and training something that is harmful to people, harmful to communities, harmful for agriculture, harmful for waterways? Let's read on. $6 billion more is allocated toward domestic procurement of Air Force missiles and U.S. Navy weapons of war. That's what we need, more missiles and more weapons. $6 billion for more missiles and more uh, Navy weapons. And this is in addition to the $740 billion that Congress passed for defense in December. The bill also spends 900 billion dollars on business bailouts but we'll get back to that. Let's go to the military spending. So the Federal News Network reports that the uh, the bill allocated to base defense spending 77 billion dollars so in addition to the $740 Seven hundred and forty billion we've already spent on so-called defense. We've got seventy-seven billion going to base defense spending. That's seventy-seven billion to overseas contingency operations and six hundred and seventy-one to to base defense spending. That's not counting what we're going to spend if we get into a war. So the legislation also appropriates three hundred million to Countering Chinese Influence Fund, Countering Chinese Influence Fund, supposedly to counter the malign influence of the government of the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party and other entities acting on their behalf globally. In addition, $3 million is going to be spent for local destabilization efforts, including internet freedom, activists' legal fees, and democracy programs. So these democracy programs, many of them are under the National Endowment for the Democracy, NED. National Endowment for Democracy sounds good, but Public Policy 101 names something the exact opposite of what it is. The National Endowment for Democracy is an anti-democracy organization. The bill allocates $3.3 million to the U.S. government-backed media outlet Voice of America and $4 million to the similarly operated Radio Free Asia. So this is just pro-empire propaganda. And Radio Free Asia includes uh, to provide uncensored news and information in the Tibetan language to Tibetans, including Tibetans in Tibet. We've got $85.5 million going to assistance to Cambodia, but that's conditioned upon them taking effective steps to enforce international sanctions with respect to North Korea and asserting its sovereignty against interference by the People's Republic of China. In other words, we're going to give Cambodia $85.5 million, but only if they cooperate in our sanctions against North Korea, and refuse to do business with China. As for Latin America, the legislation stipulates that not less than $33 million shall be made available for democracy programs. There's that word democracy. Democracy programs for Venezuela. By contrast, the legislation appropriates $461 million for Colombia a country which has seen massacre after massacre and scores of political assassinations with more than 290 human rights activists killed in 2020 alone so we're going to democ- we're going to Venezuela to give them democracy meanwhile our very best friend Colombia which is right next door so Venezuela and Colombia are both on the north end of the South American continent Colombia is right there on the northwest side next to Panama in Central America. And they're very comparable countries in terms of their size and population. Venezuela, however, is resistant to the U.S. empire. Colombia is a key part of the United States empire. If you want to see human rights violations, go to Colombia, not Venezuela. I mean, by comparison, no country is perfect, but Colombia has the worst human rights record in South America and, not coincidentally, it gets the most money from the United States. There is a correlation between how much money you get from the United States and how many human rights violations you have. This was shown by Edward Herman, the co-author of Noam Chomsky, And it's like, why do the countries that get the most American aid also have the most human rights violations? And it's because the reason they're getting aid is to suppress the people and to keep the right people in power. That's what we call democracy. When you're assassinating the wrong people so that the right people stay in power, that's what the United States calls democracy. Okay, but the money that we are giving Colombia, 20% of the funds are not going to be released until Colombia shows that it is taking effective steps to hold accountable the perpetrators of gross violations of human rights in a manner consistent with international law. I mean, this is just dripping with cynicism. The reason we're giving Colombia money is so that they will violate people's human rights violating the human rights of the wrong people, the people they're trying to keep out of power. Here's another expenditure in the COVID Relief Act and the omnibus spending bill, $70 million for internet freedom Given how we, def- how we define freedom and given how we define democracy, you can be sure that when we're allocating $70 million to Internet freedom, it's the, for the purpose of suppressing Internet freedom. It says here, Meanwhile, a Ronald Reagan-inspired program aimed at expanding U.S. influence and the war on drugs in the Caribbean the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative is being given seventy four point eight million dollars so seventy four point eight million dollars to the war on drugs we know that the war on drugs has been used to put people in jail to put little people in jail so that the prison industrial complex can make money we know that the war on drugs has been used to control black populations in the United States to the satisfaction of white populations, and this is bipartisan. Both parties do this. Joe Biden has been instrumental in this. Bill Clinton was instrumental in this. Obama was instrumental in this in the sense that he did nothing about it. We also know that the war on drugs is used to justify using herbicide in Colombia to kill coca plants. Coca plants being the plant that produces cocaine. So we're flying over Colombia to use herbicide, not the United States directly, but these contractors that are probably trained as you know, US fighter planes and people trained to fly these fighter planes are spraying herbicide over Colombia to kill the coca plants and of course when you kill the coca plants you kill all other plants as well. You kill trees, you kill other plants, you, you decimate people's agricultural lands because that's what we want to do. We want to favor the oligarchs. We want to enrich the oligarchs in Colombia at the expense of the indigenous people in Colombia. That is an an important program within the War on Drugs. We call it the War on Drugs because we're spraying coca plants, but the effect that it has is to empower and enrich the warlords and the oligarchs in Colombia and drive the indigenous peoples off their land. All of that is being empowered by the war on drugs which just got another 74.8 million dollars in the COVID relief act. We've got $15 million going to so-called democracy programs in South Sudan uh, and elsewhere in Africa. Democracy programs in Zimbabwe. And it says the Secretary of the Treasury shall instruct the United States Executive Director of each international financial institution. That's talking about the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank and all other international financial institutions. We're going to instruct them basically to deny loans to the government of Zimbabwe because that's a good use of taxpayer money so 15 million dollars is really not that much money it's not the amount of money that's being spent it's not that much money out of the pocket of the average American taxpayer it is a lot of money if you live in Zimbabwe and the US government is interfering in your country and we have the nerve to accuse the Russians of interfering in our country, which they may have done in some small way, but in the scale of things, it's nothing compared to what the U.S. does every day before breakfast. Another provision in the bill says $60 million is being repurposed away from the global war on terrorism and is made available for assistance for Sudan. If we're giving assistance to Sudan, I'm just guessing here that they're the bad guys. That you know, we're, that, that the Sudan is ruled by a dictator right now. There are not very many countries that the US gives assistance to that are not ruled by dictators. The US supports most of the dictators around the world. Here's another one. So Ukraine is currently ruled by neo-fascists, and it says, Of the funds appropriated by this act under titles blah, 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 not less than $453 million shall be made available for assistance to Ukraine. So that's a half billion dollars being made available for assistance to Ukraine. Again, it's not the amount of money, it's the effect that this money has in interfering with the affairs of other countries. And one motivation for this, one motivation for that half billion dollars going to Ukraine, is they want the Ukraine to not recognize any uh, incorporation or acquisition of Belarus. So Belarus was a former Soviet satellite nation part of the former Soviet Union the US doesn't want Belarus to go back into the Soviet Union so let's give Ukraine a half billion dollars to try to make this happen all of this has nothing to do with the well-being of the American people has nothing to do with the well-being of the people of the world this half billion dollars going to Ukraine has nothing to do with the well-being of the people of Ukraine Let's review some more military spending in the COVID Relief Act. Says here, of the $6.1 billion appropriated for funding foreign militaries, stop right there, $6.1 billion for funding foreign militaries. And we have the audacity to say that we are fighting for freedom and democracy in the world. We have the audacity to call the President of the United States the leader of the free world. He is no such thing. The President of the United States is the leader of a worldwide empire. In fact, the President of the United States is leader of the biggest empire ever known. So, $6.1 billion of military aid. When you hear about aid, okay, all this foreign aid, for one thing, the dollar amounts of foreign aid are not gonna break the bank of the average American taxpayer. It is what they are spent for. And $3.3 billion of this $6.1 billion in military aid goes to Israel because Israel is such a needy country. They are so poor and they are so beset by enemies all around them. Well, most of the enemies they have are of their own creation, just like most of the enemies of the United States are the United States' own creation. That $3.3 billion is being used to oppress the Palestinians and to deprive them of everything that matters quick lesson on Israel and Palestine. In 1948, is, uh, you know, Israeli armies uh, you know, invaded Palestine, kicked people out of their villages. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed or exiled over the course of time. Now the two areas of Israel that are still Palestinian territory, supposedly, are Gaza and the West Bank. Gaza is on the Mediterranean Sea. The West Bank is an area that refers to the West Bank of the Jordan River. Those are the two places that the Palestinians can kind of call their own, but they can't call their own because Israel is always bombing them. Israel is always uh, raiding their lands. Uh, now we've got an annexation of the West Bank. They're annexing their land. They're building roads uh, on uh just nothing, there's nothing about Gaza and the West Bank that can be called a country or even a territory. It's, it's they're just gross human rights violations. Chris Hedges calls Gaza the, the largest open-air prison in the world. It's also one of the densest populations in the world and the people have no freedom. So in that context the U.S. is giving Israel $3.3 billion more billion to continue uh, this occupation of Gaza and the West Bank. And this is in addition to the $3.9 billion per year that U- United States taxpayers give to Israel. For what reason? Why? Give you a hint, there is no good reason. It's, it's all about empire, it's all about oil, it's all about empire, it's about power. And in the U.S. we can't speak openly about this because anybody that criticizes Israel is accused of anti-Semitism, even though you're cri- criticizing the policy of the state of Israel. It's like, if you criticize Trump, that makes you anti-American, does it? But if you criticize the government of Israel, that makes you anti-Semitic. Okay, so in in addition to the $3.3 billion we're giving to Israel for military aid, we're also giving $500 million, that's half a billion, for Israeli cooperation programs. And Israeli cooperation programs include weapons procurements. So here's what Rashida Tlaib had to say about this. She is a person of Palestinian, de- Palestinian descent. And she says, talking about the bill, she says, this is what the American people will feel tonight. We have billions of your tax dollars for corporate meal expenses and a racist border wall, but only scraps for those struggling to pay for food, rent, and health care. It's disgraceful. And Rashida Tlaib also tweeted, the plan leaves people behind with no support for adult dependents, no hazard pay for essential workers, no student relief, no recurring stimulus payment, no retroactive unemployment insurance, no water shut off moratorium, no aid to states and local governments. So that's Rashida Tlaib, a congresswoman of Palestinian uh, descent. Now, continuing with the article, it says, Any, meanwhile, any aid to to the Palestinian Authority, that's the government over the, you know, it should be a sovereign Palestinian nation, but it's called the Palestinian Authority because it's just a territorial government. It says, meanwhile, any aid to the Palestinian Authority will be held up if its officials initiate or support any kind of investigation at the International Criminal Court. In other words, the International Criminal Court also called the World Court. So if there's any, you know, if the Palestinians act like they're going to seek any prosecution in the uh, Israel criminal, is in the International Criminal Court, then any aid to the Palestinian Authority is going to be held back on that basis. Now, we not only have we're not only aiding the Israeli war against the Palestinians and the Saudi war against the Yemenis and the American war against Afghanistan and we're still in Iraq. We're also in Syria. So we're in Yemen, Israel. where We've got a presence in Iran. We're constantly harassing Iran. And we've got Syria. War on Syria. Can't get enough war. And so here's what we're doing in Syria. It says, in neighboring Syria, which has been constantly bombed by Israel since the outbreak of a foreign-backed proxy war against the country's government, Congress has appropriated $40 million toward non-lethal stabilization. In other words, destabilization assistance. So, you know, constant interference. So stability and destabilization have an interesting history. Quite often, when they're talking about stability, they mean destabilization. So we're trying to destabilize the governments we don't like. Did I say we? Did I say destabilize the governments that we don't like? What I meant to say is we're destabilizing the governments that the oligarchs don't like. We're destabilizing the governments that the military industrial complex doesn't like. We're destabilizing the governments that the military industrial complex can make money from. That includes Syria. It says, even though ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, has been largely defeated, $710 million to counter the group remaining, we're, we're given 710 million dollars to counter Syria. So, uh, can, on you know, which supports the theme of just constant meddling in other countries. This is empire without looking like an empire. This is empire while falsely claiming we're fighting for freedom. So we're spending $710 million to make life miserable for the people of Syria. Now we're spending an additional $3 billion for Afghanistan Security Forces Fund. So we train these security forces, and as often as not, the same people go to fight for the enemy. So that $3 billion is to go to security forces of Afghanistan, including the provision of equipment, supplies, services, training, facility and infrastructure repair, renovation, construction, and funding. In other words, the Pentagon can spend that however they want to spend it. Meanwhile, we've got $250 million going to oppressive governments in Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, Tunisia, Oman, and so on. So I've got about a minute left. Let me leave you with something to think about. Well, it should go without saying that the powers that be do not care about you and me. I mean, it's a, it, all you have to do is look at what they do. Forget about what they say, look at what they do. Look at what not only Donald Trump does, but Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. They're in the business of getting rich off of their donors while not making even reasonable provisions for the people of America. In my humble opinion, we will not be able to save our climate or our natural world if we continue to be ruled by a class of people from both parties that don't care about you and me, they only care about themselves. The sooner we realize that, the sooner we will get on with the business of transforming our country and creating a whole new world, which we can do. Creating a whole new world is within our grasp. There's never been time like the present. If you have any questions, comments, or observations, please email me at info at net. Have a great day. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 292. Today's topic is Dare to Care. So what is this episode all about? So by dare to care, I mean the following. Number one, we must organize our economy and our political system around caring. Number two, we must care for people We must make caring for people and planet more important than anything else in public policy. We must insist that caring for people and planet is the number one priority in public policy and that anything else, to the contrary, must go. So what stands in the way of caring? And and to me, what stands in the way of caring is ideology. And there are two ideologies that have a grip on American culture and these ideologies must go because they're standing in the way of caring for people and planet. The two ideologies that must go are American exceptionalism and the free market. So American exceptionalism is this idea that the US has some unique role to play in world history, as if we're better than others, as if we have a right to dominate other countries, as if our politicians are telling the truth when they say we're gonna bring freedom and democracy to this or that country. The US, there's nothing exceptional about the US in a way that is positive. It's all about an empire. And as long as we think that America has this unique and even God-given role to play in world history, we will continue to be shafted by the ruling elites. The other ideology that stands in the way of caring for people is the free market or the free enterprise system. And this, hyper, this, this idea that hyper-competitiveness and individualism is somehow a superior way of organizing an economy. It's a powerful lie, and because it's, you know, it's, it's powerful partly because it's half-true. There is some truth in it that markets are sometimes good and com- competition is sometimes good, but there's enough lie in it where it really fools us time after time after time. So whenever you have, in my experience, whenever I'm interacting with people uh, who who somehow can't bring themselves to care or give a damn about other people, it's because an ideology is getting in the way. It's not how people are naturally, but ideology gets in the way and we've been taught these ideologies since we were knee-high to a grasshopper. We've been taught American exceptionalism since we were knee-high to a grasshopper. We've been taught about free market economics and the free enterprise system since we were knee-high to a grasshopper. And we've never been taught that there's an alternative way of looking at things. But I have the following question. Tell me why the caring for people should not be the number one priority of public policy. Whenever somebody says that we don't need Medicare for all. I say, tell me why caring for people should not be the number one priority of public policy. When I hear about the you know border wall or border police or the prison industrial complex, and tell tell me why caring for people should not be the number one priority of public policy. When I hear opposition to a universal basic income, I say, tell me why caring for people should not be the number one priority of public. Policy. So this is the climate report, and I will assert that we have a problem with climate because caring for people and the planet is something other than the number one priority of public policy. And I will assert that there are certain things that if we're still doing these things five years from now, ten years from now, we're not going to make it. For example, it doesn't matter how many solar panels and windmills we install, we will not save our climate if 10 years from now we're still dropping a bomb every 12 seconds. I've heard that stat from Lee Camp that if you do the math uh, you know, in the, in the Trump administration we're dropping a bomb every 12 seconds somewhere in the world. And it was not that much less under the Obama administration. So as long as we're dropping bombs every 12 seconds, we're not going to save the climate. Because for one thing, our our natural systems cannot handle that kind of abuse. And for another thing, it shows a complete rearrangement of priorities. Item number two. It doesn't matter how many solar panels and windmills we install, we will not be able to save our climate if, we're, if 10 years from now, we are still strangling other countries with sanctions. If we're still strangling Iran with sanctions, if we're still strangling Venezuela and even North Korea with sanctions, and if we're still doing that to dozens of countries around the world, including Cuba and Nicaragua then we will not be able to save the climate because it will demonstrate a complete lack of understanding as to our true priorities and our natural systems can't handle what we do to them when we don't understand our true priorities. Number three, it doesn't matter how many solar panels and windmills we put up, if ten years from now uh, we we are still employing two million people in the military to fight wars, but we can't be bothered to care for our own people or the natural world or our vital systems, then we will not be able to save the climate either. Item number four, we will not be able to save the climate if 10 years from now we are still building new highways at every turn, but not trains or buses. It's like highway, highway, building highway. When are we going to build another highway? When are we going to add another lane? Highways take a lot of carbon. They, take, uh, they, they fragment the habitat for the other beings that we have to share this planet with. They cost billions of dollars. Every highway costs millions of dollars per lane mile a typical four-lane highway costs at least say 20 million dollars per mile or in that vicinity and sometimes much more. So I'm old enough to remember before there was a Gene Snyder Freeway in, in Louisville. They built that and now they want to build something outside the Gene Snyder Freeway. In the early 90s or the late 80s they widened the Watterson Expressway as if we needed that. As if that was a better choice than Adding buses, adding bus stations, adding trains, adding train stations. It's like when it comes to trains, it's like, gosh, I don't even know how to do that. Well, we have enough money to pay for widening highways. We have enough money to pay for brand new highways. There's a bypass that's going to connect Interstate 71 and Interstate 65. And I will eat my shirt if it costs less than a billion dollars. Because I did the math, assuming it's 20 miles long and it's going to be longer than that. Assuming it's 20 miles long and four lanes, it's gonna be $800 million, except, you know, except it's gonna be more than that because it's not just gonna be 20 miles and it's not just gonna be four lanes. And I don't care how many electric cars we have, we don't have, you know, we're gonna lose the climate if we continue to build more and more highways. It doesn't matter if every car on that highway is electric. We will lose our battle to save the climate if 10 years from now we're still building all these highways and can't be bothered to build a bus station or buy buses. The government should buy buses to put on the highway and make them clean and safe and convenient so people will ride them. And then we need to raise the cost of driving cars by raising the price of parking, et cetera. And I'm not talking about being punitive. That's why I'm for a universal basic income, because we need for everybody to have their basic needs met so that when we raise the cost of things that are harmful and destructive, the burden of that does not fall on average people or poor people. Item number five, if 10 years from now, we will lose the battle for the climate. We will lose our struggle to save the climate if 10 years from now we are still building 17 million cars every year in the United States and 62 million cars worldwide. The manufacture of a car is a very resource-intensive endeavor. There is no other consumer good that takes more resources or more carbon or generates more pollution than does the manufacture of a new car. We need to reduce the uh, manufacture of new cars by 90%. We don't need all of these new cars. We need to build trains and install buses in their place. For that matter, we need to travel less. We need to have less goods going along the highways because most of the goods uh, do, most of the goods we, uh, we buy and sell are not strictly uh, necessary. And um, so I'm not saying that average people should have to make great sacrifices. I am saying that a lot of the crap we buy, we wouldn't even want if we had more time, more free time. And if our jobs were uh, you know, creative endeavors where we get to control our work and reap the benefits of our work. We wouldn't be so stressed out and so busy and wouldn't need all this crap if we had more time and more freedom. We should want more time and more freedom and we wouldn't need or want all this crap that we buy. Item number six, it doesn't matter how many, uh, how many electric cars we have or how many solar panels or windmills we have, we will lose the battle for, to save our climate if 10 years from now we are still getting our food from 1,500 miles away. The, the, that 1,500 figure comes up consistently in study after study. This is from Michigan State University. says, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're getting our food from 1,500 miles away on average, even though we have fertile ground and abundant rainfall all around us we here in Kentucky and Indiana, we have fertile ground and abundant rainfall all around us, and yet we're getting our food from 1,500 miles away. What's up with that? And then some food, if it's non-local, it tends to travel about eight times as far. Uh, No, eight to 92 times as far, so eight times if it's a cantaloupe 92 times if it's broccoli. So there's a range of how much food travels if it happens to be non-local. There's no rational reason for us to be getting our food from that far away. If we get our food locally, then it tends to be tastier and more nutritious. One reason it's tastier is because it doesn't have to be bred and cultivated for travel. If you breed food, uh, vegetables and stuff for travel, then it tends to be less tasty. So what can people do about this? Well, we can consume differently, but also we need to be building systems. We need systemic change. We need to build systems locally and regionally for local food, and we need to get the federal government uh, out of our, we need to, to stop the federal government from favoring the big, Food producers. The federal regulations are such that buying food locally, if, especially if it's meat or milk, it's it's harder to do. Um, it, it's harder for the small local producers of meat and milk to compete in a market that is rigged in favor of the big uh, of the big providers because of regulations. Item number seven. It doesn't matter how many solar panels or windmills or electric cars we have, we will lose our struggle to save our climate if 10 years from now we are still listening to politicians who tell us that we need economic growth, as if that's what we need. But economic growth does not deliver to people what they need. We need an economy rooted in care not economic growth. A bigger economy does not necessarily deliver to us what we want because our economy is driven by profit, not the care of people. So this supposed need for economic growth it's throughout Biden's climate plan throughout Biden's climate plan it's like we're gonna grow and we're gonna we're gonna, we've got all this technology and we're going to do economic growth it's like emphasis on technology and emphasis on economic growth neither of which is it has any correlation to meeting the needs of people and economic growth has a lot of negative impacts in terms of, You know, destroying our ecosystems and churning out a lot of pollution, including carbon pollution, but not limited to carbon pollution. Item number nine, it doesn't matter how many solar panels or windmills or electric cars we have, we will lose the struggle to save the climate if 10 years from now we are still listening to politicians who tell us that technology will save us. When politicians tell us that technology will save us or that they have a techno fix for this and a techno fix for that, they're ignoring the fact that you know we paid to create this technology. Plus, technology has, you know, electronics technology has a lot of negative uh, side effects. For one thing, it's mined by slave labor. A lot of the metals that are in our electronics technology are mined by slave labor. Plus, electronics technology takes a lot of electricity. Plus, electronics technology such as it is today has a lot of e-waste when we dispose of it and I'm not saying that individuals should have to make great sacrifices and do without technology. I am saying that we need to get rid of half of the economy because half of the economy, such as it is, does not deliver to people what we need. For example, the whole defense industry needs to be uh, eliminated to the tune of about 90% of it. We don't need even 10% of it, in my view, And that whole defense sector uses lots of electronics technology which could be either not used at all or used for other purposes if we didn't have all this defense industry. Or all this electronics that goes into cars when we wouldn't need cars if we had a functioning system of mass transit. Or all this electronics technology that supports the agribusiness industry when the agribusiness industry needs to go away or be completely transformed as to be unrecognizable. And then we have big box retail stores which need to go away to the tune of like 90% of them. We need to be able to control, uh, we in Louisville as a democratic entity need to be able to say no to these big box stores if we decide democratically that they are not good for our community. And if we did that then all of this technology that's dedicated to these big-box stores and their logistics systems and their transportation systems and their marketing systems, all of that could go away or be repurposed to something that actually helps people and makes the world better. Item number nine, we will not win the struggle to save the climate if 10 years from now, it doesn't matter how many solar panels, windmills, electric cars, we will not win this battle to save the climate if 10 years from now, we can always find more money to pay two million soldiers, standing army of two million soldiers, but we can't find enough money for teachers, nurses, and caregivers. The standing army is for the purpose of dominating the rest of the world. It has nothing to do with the well-being of people, and it does not help the people of the United States. It helps the oligarchs of the United States. It helps the plutocrats of the United States. It helps the captains of industry of the United States, but it does not help the people. And we could always find money to pay soldiers, two million of them, a standing army of two million. But we can't afford to pay teachers, nurses, and caregivers, or forest rangers. And we can't afford to pay a universal basic income, which would go a long way to meet people's needs. So let's talk about socially beneficial jobs. What I've been talking about is a list of nine or 10 things that if we're still doing these things 10 years from now, we are not going to save our climate. And what I'm addressing that to is people like, for example, oh, corporate Democrats, mainstream Democrats who think, you know, oh, I drive an electric car or I'm trying to support solar in my community. Meanwhile, uh, there's a Biden-Harris sign in the yard and Biden and Harris are two of the most, you've got about one of the most militaristic uh, pro-war cabinets that has ever existed. And I'm not saying you shouldn't vote for Biden or Harris if you think that's the lesser of two evils. I'm saying let's look at the bipartisan military-industrial complex. And if you're a corporate Democrat who's a kind of an environmentalist, People are looking to you as an example, and if you're telling them that, oh, if we just put up a solar panel here and there and, you know, hold your nose and vote for uh, a militarist like Joe Biden, hold your nose and vote for a militarist like Hillary Clinton, and if you're not making an issue out of all this militarism, then that's part of the problem. So let's go over here to the topic of socially beneficial jobs. I've been railing against the system that should not be. Let's talk about the system that should be. So today's topic is dare to care. And if we want to put our money where our mouth is, if we want to be, if we want to demand that caring for people is the number one priority of our government, then here's how we do it. It's not by spending all this money for a two million person standing army, as if we need that. Let's talk about what it looks like to create jobs that actually care for people, care for nature, and care for our vital systems. So I've read over Biden's climate plan, and it doesn't have any of this stuff in it. If people think windmills and solar panels and electric cars are the way to go, but you're not saying an immediate halt to deforestation, no more deforestation on public lands, no more fracking anywhere, no more petrochemical plants, then it doesn't matter what else we do. So here's the kind of jobs under the title of socially beneficial jobs. So we want socially beneficial jobs that demonstrate our care of people, care of nature, and care of vital systems. So, you know, Biden's climate plan has a lot to say about creating jobs in clean energy. As if there is such a thing as clean energy. I want to see what clean energy looks like, because I don't think it exists. I don't think a solar panel is clean energy. I think we need to have some solar panels, but it's not clean energy and we need to have some windmills, but it's not clean energy. And if you think you're gonna, you know, we're gonna solar panel our way to the promised land and we're gonna windmill our way to the promised land, then you're neglecting something very important and that is caring for people, caring for nature, and caring for our vital systems. So caring for people is like, uh, are we gonna take some of this climate budget and let's say we had a budget for dealing with climate change, some of that budget needs to be dedicated to caring for people who are elderly. Because guess what? Caring for people who are elderly is a relatively low-carbon job. People want to do the job and it's the right thing to do. Caring for people who are sick through Medicare for All, through funding for our nursing homes. Caring for people who are sick is the right thing to do. It's a low-carbon job, and a lot of people want to do the job. Caring for people who are young. Preschoolers, K through 12, you know, hiring paraprofessionals, hiring teachers' assistants, paying teachers well. It's a, a low-carbon job. It's important. People want to do it. And it's the right thing to do. The same can be said for you know hiring people to care for those who are disabled. It's the right thing to do, people want to do it, and it's a low-carbon job. So there are lots of jobs that we can create that aren't as sexy as solar panel installation or windmill repairman or throwing a lot of money at Elon Musk so he can hire, you know, electrical engineers and mechanical engineers so he can buy build uh, Teslas for those who can afford a luxury electric cars. So it's not as sexy as all that stuff but it's very important and it's low carbon work. So in addition to caring for people we also need to care for nature. We need to hire forest rangers. We need to, need to get away from this silly notion that says capitalists are the only ones capable of creating good jobs. We've got to throw money at capitalists so they can create the jobs. No, you create a budget, you promulgate regulations, and then you make it happen. Government can do that. Government does that every day in the military, and government does a lot of that in relation to health care. We do have Medicare for those who are over 65, we need it for everybody else, but every day Government creates jobs for people in health care. We can take those same skill sets, those same resources and care for nature, such as forest rangers. We already hire forest rangers. Some of them have their priorities out of line. We need to get their priorities in line but we need to care for nature by hiring forest rangers. We need people to be trained in ecological landscaping. We need to care for our waterways by properly regulating businesses that are along waterways and that would otherwise pollute water. We need to care for our oceans. We need to use all this satellite technology and all this naval technology and all this Air Force technology for monitoring, for preventing people from overfishing In the oceans. The oceans are rapidly losing all of their fish. We could use all this technology and military might to do something that counts and thereby care for nature by caring for our oceans. We also need to care for nature by caring for our air quality and the quality of our soil and the health of our wetlands. We can do this. But it's up to you and I to be informed about this stuff because a problem identified is half solved. We can understand the problem properly only by seeing that our government has the money to spend on these things and even could have the know-how, but chooses to spend on blowing people up. We also need to care, so the title of this episode is Dare to Care. We need to care for our vital systems, including our farms, our transportation, our communication, infrastructure, like, you know, community broadband, something that serves the people, not the profiteers. And we need to care for that vital system called a community. We can do that by not having all these invasive species called corporations come in and dominate our local economy. And we can do that by having what I call local sovereignty. We, the people of Louisville, decide who does business here and who does not. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Email info at theclimatereport.net if you have any questions, comments, or observations.